The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. So the title for this episode comes from a poem by English poet Elizabeth Jennings. It was 1926 through 2001. Uh, This poem contains the lines, Observe it there, the fountain, too fast for shadows, too wild for the lights which illuminate it to hold, even a moment, an ounce of water back. The poem in full details how we might observe a fountain in an urban center and makes a comparison to more ancient traditions. Uh, Joe, were you familiar with this poem or this poet uh, prior to this episode? Uh, she, She was a new one for me. I'm not sure the name is familiar, but I need to look up more of her stuff to to see if there's anything I recognize. Well, this poem, Fountain, uh, like I say, it, it also connects back to some of these more ancient traditions that uh, that are reflected in, in our tradition of spending times with fountains and other water features. Uh, just to read an, another uh, bit from it, quote, See in that stress an image of utter calm, a stillness there. It is how we must have felt once at the edge of some perpetual stream, fearful of touching, bringing no thirst at all, panicked by no perception of ourselves, but drawing the water down to the deepest wonder. Well, that phrasing gives a much profounder spin to the kind of awe that I recall uh, feeling when looking at fountains as a child. Particularly what I remember is a fountain in the mall in my hometown uh, when I was a kid that had a kind of... Uh, kind of a, a tile mosaic bottom that was always covered in pennies. Uh, I guess mm. the idea was that people would throw pennies into the fountain and make a wish. At least that's what I was always told you did. And I really liked to, to do this. And I think firmly believed in the magic of the uh, the wish-granting powers of the fountain. I didn't even think about fountains and water features in malls. But, oh, man, shopping malls had some great ones, uh, as far as I remember. And, of course, smaller at the time, so they, they seemed more gigantic. 
uh, you know, some sort of a, a, a fountain there in the atrium of the mall. Uh, beautiful to behold. I do remember thinking when I saw all of the pennies on the bottom, uh, I also thought at some point they they must clean all those up because it's not like overflowing with pennies. They, they've got to mm-hmm. go in and get them. And then my thought as a child was, who gets to keep all that money? That's so much money when you collect all of them. You know, that's got to be mm-hmm. tens of dollars. <laughs> I mean, this is why that one scene in The Goonies, I think, was so impactful. Uh, the the extrapolation of uh, of our dreams of harvesting the coins of a fountain, you know. Oh, is that in a, is that in the Goonies? I don't remember that. They had the same thought I did. Well, no, they, in the Goonies, if memory serves, it's been a long time since I've seen it. Uh, there's that uh, there's like these caverns beneath the wishing well, and that's where all the coins are. And one of the kids goes to steal a bunch of them, and they're like, "No, no, those are people people's wishes. You're not supposed to take them." Wow. And uh, the, the children, you know, abstain, uh, and ultimately they have pirate gold on the radar. So. Well, this, I well, I didn't make out. the connection. I did believe in the wish-granting powers, and I did uh, greedily lust after all of the penny money, but I didn't think that would be stealing people's wishes. It's already yeah. granted, right? Once the penny's there, now it's just free money. Yeah, I don't know how the—it depends on how superstitious you are, I guess, uh, how it works. But at any rate, I yeah, I always am curious to see if a fountain has coins, and even though I don't—nowadays I'm not thinking about harvesting them— uh, I'm still, that's one of the things I kind of like am checking off the mental checklist when I check out a fountain. Are there coins in it? Uh, what's the filtration system look like? You know, where's the mm-hmm. water coming out of? Like, if there's a fountain somewhere, I need to get closer to it so I can take it all in. Uh, beyond that, I don't think I'd ever really thought about, you know, any universal truths about the the calming nature of fountains. I've always just kind of in the back of my mind thought, well, they're nice, Sometimes they have interesting statues incorporated into their design. Uh, they can be cooling on a hot day, that sort of thing. Uh, and they're often like at the center of everything. You know, I think of like the, the fountain at, in Washington Square. You know, I think about the, uh, indeed, the, the fountains in the atrium at a mall, at a shopping mall, which was a, like a center of community in some respects. Well, in yet another way, the, the fountain was sacred to my child brain, but uh taking some of the profound uh, varnish off of it, I do associate the idea of a fountain with the smell of the mall food court. <laughs> you know, it's that's where the Sbarro mingles with the uh, with the teriyaki place. Mm, yeah, well, the mall food court of our childhoods. This is a place where you also had freedom. Uh, it's yeah. like suddenly you could often, often the case, you could choose what you were going to eat. Um, and it, it made you feel powerful. But uh, coming back to water features and, uh, and fountains uh, specifically, um, of course, we have to think larger than that. We have to think, of too, about just like running water, bodies of water in general. And, uh, you know, pers- personally, uh, and I, I think this applies somewhat universally, I- I've always found waters to be calming, to be around. They're often great places to do some thinking or to do less thinking in a good way, you know, to, to um, sort of unshackle from your normal thought process. And uh, I think I've mentioned before on the show that there's a, a very useful stress reduction exercise that makes use of this connection. Uh, it's called leaves on a stream. It's a cognitive diffusion technique that allows you to distance yourself from the thoughts that you're having. Uh, so the way it goes, and you can look this up online, there are plenty of online resources that, um, that, that spell it out in more detail, but you imagine yourself seated beside a running stream. You imagine taking a given thought, essentially taking it out of yourself, placing it upon a floating leaf, 
and allowing the stream to carry that leaf and the thought away from you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, everyone's mileage may vary, but I, I find it very constructive. But I was thinking about it again here, thinking about fountains, thinking about natural bodies of water and their, their, their calming powers. It does seem like an especially nice image for concretizing your your emotions and your thoughts uh, because it's it's passive like the uh, mm-hmm. the water does the carrying away for you. So it doesn't even involve you having to imagine like forcing or shoving the idea away. It, it is just carried away by nature. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we've talked a, a bit on the show previously about the history and importance of public waterworks. We're not going to retread all of that here, but I wanted to at least touch on some of it. Uh, in this case, via a 2015 article titled Short Global History of Fountains by Juti et al., published in the journal Water. Now, it's pointed out that the word fountain stems from the Latin fons, which uh, can refer to both artificial and natural water features, uh, not like the fons on uh, Happy Days, but uh, F-O-N-S. Right. Um, I've also read that the, the source is fontana, uh, which informs the medieval fount uh, or source, And so fountain becomes a a symbol of a providing source as well. Like this idea of a fountain as being this thing from which something else uh, beneficial arises becomes uh, pretty crucial to a lot of uh, a lot of our language. Now, the construction of fountains properly dates back to ancient times. And the authors of this paper point out that regional water availability played a, a role in what form fountains took and how they were fed. For instance, they mentioned that for the ancient Egyptians, bringing water out for the people or for personal use, it was a matter of pulling water from the mighty Nile. Meanwhile, the Minoans and the Greeks brought water down from the mountains via aqueducts. So um, uh, this is you know, something to keep in mind. Like, like there's the sort of, the, especially when you go back into the origins of fountains, there are a lot more practical um, purposes in mind for having that water there. And then how do you get the water there? You're not, you're not just piping it in from the local modern water system. You know, there are other means that have to be in place. Mm-hmm. One of the primary purposes for ancient fountains was, of course, to bring water to the people for drinking, as well as for other uses, such as bathing. We've talked about that on the show before. Another big one uh, that I, I hadn't thought as much about, and I guess part of this is because we haven't We've, we've touched on firefighting, but we haven't done a lot on firefighting. But this was another reason to have uh, a source of water available uh, in a center of uh, the population. I think we actually did a pretty extensive look at firefighting in our invention episode on the fire extinguisher. Yeah, and we got into like fire extinguisher grenades and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but going into ancient history, how the the firefighting in ancient Rome and how it had a very a very different character, because if I remember correctly, the early version in uh, maybe like the first century BCE or so, uh, there was like a rich guy who instituted fire brigades who would uh, come to your house if it was on fire, not to like as a public service, put it out for you, but to say, hey, uh, I will buy your house for the following price. Uh, take it or leave it. And if you know if you agreed to let this guy buy your house then his dudes would put out the fire mm, yeah i think there's a scene in one of stephen sailor's um gordianus books that take place in ancient rome where this exact situation takes place with like the uh, you know, the building burning down and and here's the, here the, this guy shows up and he's like mm, well you know it looks like your property's uh, uh really uh, plummeting in value now would be a great time to sell to me uh, as opposed to five minutes from now. 
wicked in an especially hilarious way. But of course, you know, later on, the idea of firefighting as a public service that benefits everyone does develop. Uh, and yeah, uh, of course, there are a lot of different ways to fight fires. Uh, not all of them involve water, of course. Some involve like, you know, pulling down structures to create barriers to fire spreading mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, but yeah, water, of course, is uh, quite often one of the most important tools in fighting fires. Now, one of the things about bringing water into a city, uh, one of the problems here, or potential potential problems, is well, you're going to have to deal with drainage, removal of fouled water, and various public health challenges that can emerge from public waterworks. Um, and, and that can get into things like, uh, you know, have to worry about waterborne illnesses, potentially mosquitoes, things of that nature. So systems to bring water into, uh, into a city, uh, th- these were extremely important for human civilizations. Um, and we see them in all the major civilizations of the ancient world, as well as the various ancient civilizations of the new world. The earliest carved water basin apparently dates back to 3000 BC in the Mesopotamian site of Tello, and a stone fountain figure in another Mesopotamian site, uh, Mari, dates back to 2000 BC. Um, This would basically be in line with the common fountain trope that we've seen again and again of a goddess holding a base of some sort that that releases piped-in water. uh, just sort of an, an irresistible image. And I guess part of this comes down to like what a fountain does that like recasts the idea of water being gifted to people. Mm. As if from a Morton Joe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Romans were, of course, masters of uh, hydraulics, which they adopted from the Etruscan civilization. And the Roman tradition greatly influenced the medieval fountain tradition to follow. Now, one thing in this paper that I thought was really interesting, they point out that um, in China, Wells and streams were along the primary source of water. So wells tend to play the role we see public fountains play in other parts of the world in some of these uh, Mesopotamian um, um, accounts. Uh, these public wells were crucial as well to city planning. These would be the things that you, you know, plan the, the structure of the, the city around. Uh, they also note that, quote, spring and structures uh, have also assumed uh, characteristics of fountains in China, Um, So what we might think of as proper fountains were also introduced uh, and built in urban and palace settings later over the course of centuries. Um, But but sometimes you might have something just constructed at a a, where a spring emerges or where a spring has has come to. And this will sort of take on the the building and appearance of a Western fountain. Now, the authors uh, even include discussion of modern and industrial age water kiosks in the paper. Which, uh, which serve the purpose of distributing clean water to the people, though um, without most of the more aesthetically pleasing aspects um, that you associate with a, with a public fountain nowadays. Uh, you can look up images of various water kiosks. I believe they're, they're especially common in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, a place where people can go and get water, and it often takes on a more, I guess, sort of commercial appearance. I mean, it looks like a little, a little shop. Uh, mm-hmm. In many cases, uh, sometimes they even uh, you see something that looks more like a uh, vending machine. And you can also make comparisons like water kiosk and, say, public ice dispensary. Uh, you know, those mm. uh, you see these uh, especially we see these a lot in the United States. I know when you go into rural areas and there's like the standalone machine that you can pull up to, you pay the machine and you get some ice uh, you know, uh, you you are buying water, uh, albeit in a frozen form, from that machine. 
Right. Now, that being said, I guess water kiosks could still be considered like a social center, a place where people were going for water. And uh, while most of the examples I, I was looking at seem largely transactional and functional, I suppose it doesn't have to be the case. Um, though when I looked around for like more pleasing designs and water kiosks, um, uh, the only thing that was coming up for me were various design competitions that were more situated in, say, London and were essentially coming up with water fountain designs that, you know, looked crazy. Things that weren't necessarily, I think, actually um, brought to life in uh, in urban settings. Um, but uh, I don't know. Maybe there have been uh, efforts to uh, to sort of uh, evolve uh, water kiosk sites throughout uh, the rest of the world as well. I'm not sure. Well, this idea sort of highlights the two different faces of the civic water dispensing area. So uh, you can have on one hand something that is functional, that is there in it's a place for people to get water that they need for, you know, everything in life, basically, that you need in order to drink, to cook, to clean and so forth. And then the other idea is water-based infrastructure that is there to be enjoyed, maybe the same way that a park would be there to be enjoyed. I think in the in the the popular imagination, something that brings all of these together is, of course, uh, the chocolate factory of Willy Wonka, where we see the chocolate mixed by waterfall. Uh, it is a pleasing waterfall to behold. Um, you're, you're not supposed to swim in it, of course. Um, but, uh, but, but still, you know, some uses of the chocolate are available via fountain. Oh, and then, of course, we do have chocolate, chocolate fountains at, uh, at events and all. So it is weird how we get into this use of fountains, both in the imagination and in reality, <laughs> for uh, liquids that are not drinking water. Why do the culinary fountains always go in the sweet direction? I, I want to see more savory <laughs> ones, you know. So it's the nacho cheese fountain, the gravy fountain. Oh. Uh, I don't know what else. Maybe cheese fondue fountain. I guess that's pretty similar to nacho cheese. Well, th that surely exists, right? Some sort of a cheese fountain. I suppose, uh, I would guess. Yeah. Anyway, the, coming back to this Water Journal um, paper, the authors here, they stress that fountains also often stood as symbols of power and wealth. Somebody builds them, someone provides them for the people. Uh, but there's still this calming element to the urban fountain, offering sights and sounds conducive to relaxation uh, that are frequently cited in histories and literature. Um, as many of the, the practical reasons for public fountains declined in modern times, um, the aesthetic elements remained in play, including the soothing sights and sounds of the running water. An another interesting point, this, was, uh, this is something I read in Fountains as Reservoirs of Myth and Memory from Myths on the Map, the Storied Landscapes of Ancient Greece from 2017 by Betsy A. Robinson, or uh, this section about fountains is by Robinson. Um, and in, in this, uh, they point out that public fountains, specifically those in Greek traditions, were also a means of, quote, connecting past and present and establishing authority by uh, the manipulation of architectural form and the selective retelling of stories. So, mm. I don't know, I found that fascinating to, to think about and be reminded of uh, because the, the public fountain here is, is both a means of bringing water to the people, but also conceptualizing the deliverer um, of that water by means of myth and legends reflected in the carvings, the statues, and so forth that make up a given fountain. For instance, who is the goddess that is pouring forth the water? And what is that goddess's uh, relationship to, the, to the, the people in power at the moment, et cetera? 
yes, flowing water almost kind of naturally tells a story or it, it, it e- easily can be narrativized in some way by, uh, you know, filling in the infrastructure around it with with images and representations. Yeah. Can you imagine if our primary sources of water today are faucets? Um, what if by law they were required to resemble uh, entities or beings or specific people of, in power yeah. <laughs> as, they're, as they're bringing forth your precious drinking or dishwashing water. Yes, the faucet is like your local water commissioner's face and the, <laughs> and the water is coming out of their mouth or something. Yeah. They're like vomiting the water to you. Yeah. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes. I guess identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Anyway, the, the main idea we're exploring in this episode, though, is the idea that there is something soothing, calming, and mentally restoring about public fountains. Something that may, you know, uh, subjectively seem to be the case with many of us, but, you know, is there something more objective there as well? Um, there's actually been a fair amount of uh, certainly recent scholarship on the topic that we're going to touch on. Uh, in the, uh, and in this, we're going to get into this idea of blue spaces. So in the world of urban um, and land use planning, there's green space, obviously. Uh, you know, we think of gardens, uh, trees, um, whole parks, etc. And then there's a subset of green space known as blue space. And the blue, of course, refers to water, uh, you know, as Water is often blue on the map, if not uh, in actual visual appearance, and it entails all manner of naturally occurring and artificial water features, including fountains. Now, once again, it's important to stress that proximity to natural and or artificial blue spaces has always come with certain additional risks and potential dangers. Uh, we talked about those already, but there's also this compelling idea that blue spaces are an overall mental and or physical health benefit to those with access to the feature. And on one hand, this basic idea would seem to, to line up uh, with uh, the late E.O. Wilson's biophilia hypothesis, something we've talked about on the show before. Yeah, this is kind of interesting. So we've done multiple episodes exploring and critiquing the biophilia hypothesis uh, at length in the past. So we're not going to go into great depth on that again here. But briefly, in Wilson's words, this would have been uh, what he believed was, quote, the innate tendency to focus on life and lifelike processes. So the argument goes that there is something in our brains that calls us to be fascinated by and attracted to other forms of life beyond just the obvious and direct benefits to our survival that we would get from them. So it's obvious why you would be attracted to, say, an animal or a plant that you might eat for food, but that our fascination by an attraction to life forms goes way beyond this, goes to, uh, you know, things that you can't eat, things that you can't necessarily get any tangible, uh, quantifiable benefit from. We still, these other life forms, we still want to see and touch and spend time around them. And when they're not present in our lives, we feel a kind of uh, we, we feel that loss as a, as a kind of uh, malaise or, or unhappiness. And so a funny thing here about water is that, of course, moving water is very often associated with the suite of aesthetic and environmental preferences suggested by the biophilia hypothesis. Yet, of course, water is itself not alive. It, like rocks and air, is part of the inorganic environment. And yet, of course, the presence of water is greatly associated with the presence of life. Basically, all life on Earth needs water to survive. And it's not an accident that when, you know, you're walking through the desert and you come to an oasis, it is suddenly surrounded by forms of life that were not found in the surrounding landscape. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you can make the argument that, you know, we're hardwired to appreciate something like a nice flowing stream as opposed to another body of water. How would uh, how would Donald Pleasance put it, Joe? Oh, the spirit of dark and lonely waters. Yeah, yeah, the spirit <laughs> yeah. of dark and lonely water. That's it. Ready to trap the unwary, the show off, the fool. In <laughs> uh, this, we're, of course, referring to something we discussed in um, uh, an older Halloween episode on uh, what Jenny Greenteeth, uh, but it was a, what, a British public service um, advertisement uh, 
um, yeah. or video message warning you against uh, stagnant uh, ponds and the danger to young children posed there. Right. Warning children not to play in the in the pools of black liquid that gather in abandoned buildings. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, thinking about biophilia hypothesis in, in light of all this is, is interesting. And I was I was looking around in the, in the book uh, that, that Wilson co-wrote on it. And it, at one point, uh, mention, he mentions that while uphill or spraying aspects of artificial fountains rarely occur in nature. Uh, it points out, you know, obviously we have geysers, but, uh, but, but still, even if a fountain is, is pumping water straight up in the air, uh, you know, it's still something we connect with, even if this is not the normal way that water behaves in just the average environment. Uh, he writes, quote, yet the motion of water in fountains seems to have the same hypnotic attraction as water flowing downhill in a waterfall. Hmm. He also writes that it would be interesting to see a study of people observing, quote, quiet and repetitive motions of predators, sharks in an aquarium, circling birds of prey, or other stalking movements of wolves or large felines, which combine Heraclitian movement with potential danger. Now, just to note there, Heraclitianism is a philosophy concerning everything uh, except the logos remaining in flux with the four elements eternally cycling into each other and so forth. There's a lot to it, uh, but the philosopher of its namesake, Heraclitus, circa 500 BCE, uh, his ideas can be basically condensed down to the idea that everything flows, that everything is becoming but never being. Um, and that does feel like it lines up with a lot of the, the essence of moving water observations and the various metaphors we form about it. But at any rate, uh, yeah, I like, I like how this flows into the idea of um, the attractive nature of streams and, uh, and fountains. But uh, coming back to what E.O. Wilson ponders here, and I looked, up, I looked it up, I, I, I wasn't able to find any studies that actually uh, took the challenge here. But I was wondering, uh, okay, aquariums are especially relaxing, I find, if, if, or at least the, the parts that involve fish and water. Sometimes the, um, you know, the, the crowds can be a bit much. But in terms of like staring in through the aquarium glass at an aquarium enclosure can be very relaxing. Sometimes there are sharks there. Our local aquarium has sharks. Um, and I was trying to, I was looking back on, on my experiences of viewing those sharks, and I'm like, is this relaxing? Um, and I, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, obviously, for me anyway, I mean, if I'm looking at a shark in a shark tank, um, I know that I'm not in danger. It's not going to, uh, you know, pop out of the glass at me. Um, I'm distant from it. On the other hand, observing large predators in zoo environments sometimes can feel a little uncanny in my experience, you know, like if it, the lion's looking right at you, that sort of thing, or, uh, you know, another large predator is eyeing your toddler or your infant like that, mm -hmm. that gets a little, uh, that starts, you know, uh, turning on some, uh, some lights that are kind of buried in your psyche. But, um, in terms of the sharks in the aquarium, I, I'm not sure. I, I asked my wife about this and she was like, like, uh, no, no, it's, it's absolutely relaxing. Uh, there's nothing, there's nothing stressful about observing these predators for her. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, Joe. Well, I feel like I may have missed something here. Was was Wilson suggesting that the predators would be relaxing? I interpreted that him to mean that the the idea of a slowly circling predator with Heraclitian movement would be uh, like an arresting image. Hmm. Well, I think the what, what I took to be the idea is like which which energy is going to win out. Like the movement 
is relaxing. Mm, but it's okay. a predator engaging in the movement, and these would I be see. traditional movements of said predators. Um, like, what is going to be the end result? I see. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm not sure what I would say about sharks in particular. I mean, I certainly find aquariums incredibly relaxing, but like you also, uh, that is, they're strongly counteracted by the presence of loud crowds around them. Uh, but like a, a, an aqu- viewing an aquarium in a quiet space is, I think, one of the most relaxing things I can imagine. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure that a shark being in there would really change anything about it. Um Seeing a shark swimming around, I mean, assuming I'm not in the water. <laughs> yeah, or, or in, the, uh, in the captivity of a Bond villain, that sort of thing, right? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's probably still uh, just as relaxing as any other side of an aquarium. Hmm. All right, well, we've drifted off course a little bit. Let's get back to uh, just the, the basic idea that spending time near a body of water would have some sort of beneficial effect on you. Right. So at this point, there have been a lot of different studies investigating the impact of uh, green and blue spaces on human well-being. Uh, And specifically, the question with blue spaces would be, does living near or spending time near a body of water improve your mental and physical health? And if so, how does it create those improvements? And fortunately, uh, just a couple of years ago, there was a meta-analysis that rounded up all of the existing research and synthesized what we know so far with a special focus on the mechanism of action, the question of how blue space works on us. The paper is called Mechanisms of Impact of Blue Spaces on Human Health, a Systematic Literature Review and Meta-Analysis by uh, Mikhail Georgiou et al., published in the journal, uh, the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health in 2021. And this study begins with a general survey of the research on the health effects of exposure to natural environments. The authors note that most of the research in this area has actually been focused on something slightly different on green spaces rather than blue spaces. And this is also something we've looked at in multiple episodes in the past. But short summary, there is pretty strong evidence that living near or spending time in areas Uh, where surfaces are covered in plant life, basically, where, you know, you'd be exposed to grass, trees, uh, vegetation of various sorts, is correlated with a wide range of benefits in all kinds of domains and everything from markers of physical health, cardiovascular health, and so forth, to mental and emotional well-being, uh, lower rates of anxiety, things like that, uh, and even, like, greater cognitive performance in school children. So, in short, I think we can say with pretty high confidence confidence that it is good for you to spend time in a park or a forest compared to spending the same amount of time in a landscape fully paved with metal and concrete and plastic. Something about living near and spending time in those kinds of environments has a a wide range of benefits for your body and mind. Mm -hmm. Now, the authors of this study note that a lot of the research, unfortunately, does not disentangle the variables of exposure to blue spaces, meaning bodies of water, including lakes, rivers, coastlines, canals, and in some cases, even smaller features like fountains and things from exposure to green spaces. Sometimes the presence of water is treated as part of the definition of green spaces, sometimes not. Uh, So that's unfortunate. And it would be good to separate these variables out to see if they have effects independent of one another. And fortunately, some studies have done that. They've separated them out and looked at blue spaces independently. Now, the first half of the question, do blue spaces have 
positive effects on our well-being? The answer seems to be a pretty firm yes. The authors write, Recent epidemiological studies have shown that blue spaces have a positive effect on public health, including the reduction of mortality rate with the greatest rate of decline seen in areas closest to blue space, uh, better physical health, and better mental health. And there's there are copious citations in support of these general statements. Uh, so this brings us to the main question explored here, which is why? Why is exposure to water or living near water uh, good for you? Why would it be good for, say, lowering your mortality or giving you better physical health or mental health? And the authors of the study explore four main hypothetical mechanisms, all of which are on their own known to have significant positive effects on mortality, physical health, and mental health. And these mechanisms are social interaction, physical activity, environmental factors, and restoration. So physical activity, this is pretty straightforward. Maybe blue spaces encourage people to get more exercise. Getting more exercise is strongly correlated with decreased mortality and improvements in mental and physical health. Uh, and maybe something about living near water or having water in your geographical area makes you more likely to exercise. Okay, that, that, that seems to track, yeah. Second mechanism. Maybe uh, it's social interaction. Maybe blue spaces encourage people to spend more time interacting with others rather than alone, which, again, has well-known, well-established benefits. Third thing is environmental factors. Uh, this refers to the effects of bodies of water on other local environmental variables that have their own effects on human well-being. The authors write, quote, blue spaces may contribute to a healthier environment and reduce air pollution, heat island effect, risk of flooding, etc. And then fourth, restoration. Exposure to blue spaces might improve restoration, which they define uh, by saying that they use the definition from another paper. So I had to look up what that paper was <laughs> to get the definition. Uh, and basically, it seems to be, quote, recovery from depleted attentional capacity or stress. Mm. Uh, this is also something we've uh, we've explored on the show before. But basically, uh, the question here would be whether exposure to water sources helps people relax and recharge to recover from depleted attention spans from having, you know, people spend a lot of their attentional energy on certain types of tasks or not even tasks, maybe even just, you know, uh, like scrolling their phones or something all day. This creates a lot of stress. And then there are other types of experiences people can have that tend to restore uh, depleted attentional resources and relax you and sort of uh, remove those biomarkers of, of stress that, that people would notice, like, uh, you know, elevated levels of cortisol and blood or in the saliva interesting so it's yeah it's 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 kind of a satisfying exercise to take these different factors and apply them to different sort of activities and environments like for instance you think of say a fishing pond a number of these uh, you can easily check off i don't know physical activity i guess you could have a discussion there regarding fishing and i guess it depends on how you're going about fishing and then likewise if you apply it to say a fountain in the middle of a public square that sort of thing um uh, some of these more easily are checked off the uh, off off the list here, but even like physical activity. I mean, you think of environments that have a fountain. Uh, I mean, I don't know about the rest of you. I think of like children playing in said fountain, whether they're supposed yeah. to or not. I think of people doing things around the fountain. So even if you're not, say, attempting to swim laps in the fountain or do boating in the in the fountain, uh, there still may be physical action that is encouraged around it. 
Right. So uh, we'll get to in a second what the evidence for these factors or not is. But yeah, you can't always know exactly how it works, but you can imagine tons of possibilities, mm-hmm. like maybe having a uh, a canal or a river or something nearby just makes people want to get out and go on a walk more often. That, yeah. that could be it. Yeah. But finally, I wanted to finish up my note about uh, what the mechanism with restoration would be if blue spaces do encourage restoration. That leads to the better effects uh, on mental and physical health because the authors say, quote, stress, anxiety, depressed mood and psychological well-being uh, have been linked with the risk of cardiovascular diseases and mental health issues. So that link is also firmly established. So the authors did their review and analyzed all the studies that had any results illuminating these possible mechanisms, whether they hold true or not. Uh, And there were 50 studies total in their review. They said 27. Ultimately, they concluded had data relevant to the to the meta-analysis on this question. And what they found was, quote, three of the four hypothesized pathways, physical activity, restoration, and environmental factors, are supported by empirical evidence, while findings on social interaction are inconclusive. Uh, Now, as for physical activity, they say people's physical activity seemed to increase with both their proximity to blue space and with the total amount of blue space in their geographical area where they lived. So it seems that both of these factors are correlated with people getting more exercise. It uh, it seems people get out and get more physical activity if there is water somewhere in their neighborhood and also more if their home is physically closer to water. Hmm. So this seems like a pretty strong candidate explanation. Second one is restoration. They found that blue space was correlated with increased restoration. The authors write, intriguingly, the increase of amount of blue space within a geographical area was found to be the highest among all mediating pathways and exposures. This evidence, therefore, suggests that developing more blue spaces within neighborhoods could primarily benefit the restorative character of an area. So uh, so having some kind of blue space in your general geographic area, that definitely that helps with uh, alleviating stress. However, the interesting and kind of surprising thing to me was that they did not find evidence that your individual proximity to blue space had an effect on restoration. Uh, And they write, quote, while urbanicity is found to increase mental disorders through stress, we propose that creating more blue spaces and promoting contact with them can be used to reverse this effect and ameliorate urban living. So it looks like another fairly strong candidate to me here. Uh, Having more water and waterways in the general area where you live seems to have a relaxation and restoration effect on people, counteracting stress and thus achieving improvements in health. Of course, again, chronic stress is bad for you. Hmm. Now, the other two mechanisms were more complicated or a different story. As for environmental factors, uh, they say there is evidence for a couple of things, um, but it's kind of complicated. So the authors did find some evidence that blue spaces correlate with lowering heat stress and with improving air quality. But they said that the evidence base for those was kind of small and messy. And other environmental factors they looked at, such as effects on noise pollution and biodiversity, there was not enough evidence to reach a conclusion. Uh, And then they also say when it comes to environmental factors, there are some that could be operating in the opposite direction. Like there, as you mentioned earlier, Uh, uh, there could be some negative environmental effects of having water nearby, such as, say, being a vector for infectious disease or something like that. Mm. So this one seems to be sort of a question mark. 
the evidence for the effects that are there is kind of weak and effects appear to be going in both directions. And then finally, for social interaction, uh, they said that uh, the evidence, again, is kind of weak. Previous findings were mixed, but the meta-analysis did not find a significant effect of blue spaces on social interaction. But it does look like the, the evidence for two of the four categories is pretty strong. Having more blue space in the neighborhood and living closer to blue space appears to increase people's amount of physical exercise, which has strong benefits for health, and living in an area with more blue space in the general geographical region has restorative effects. It helps people relax and recharge to counteract the stress of life. Uh, now, I do want to mention that this study was focused on blue spaces in general, and the majority of effects documented, from what I could tell, were probably coming more from larger natural and artificial waterways, like lakes and rivers and canals and so forth. So I don't know how much you could map the total effects of blue space onto specific things like, like smaller water features, uh, installations like fountains and so forth. Right. So don't take uh, this podcast episode or or these uh, various studies here as just like clear evidence that it's time to install that water feature in your yard because it might not have ultimately have that big a difference. Um, but but who knows? Maybe it'll be delightful. Maybe it will be calming. Maybe all you need is that uh, the sound of trickling water. But a lot of the more specific uh, and detail oriented questions out of the way. Uh, it does seem just generally true that, yes, green space is good for mental and physical health, and blue space also seems to be pretty good for mental and physical health. Absolutely. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love— you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. 
my best hopes. I guess identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I was looking at a study uh, out of uh, 2022 titled uh, A Population-Based Retrospective Study on the Modifying Effect of Urban Blue Space on the Impact of Socioeconomic Deprivation on Mental Health 2009 through 2018 by Giorgio et al. published in Scientific Reports. I think this is the same first author as the meta-analysis I just looked at. Mm. So this particular study, uh, quote, aimed to investigate whether living near blue space longitudinally modifies the effect of socioeconomic deprivation on mental health. The authors write, quote, hence, we study longitudinally the impact of a large-scale regeneration of the Glasgow branch of the Forth and Clyde Canal, an urban blue space, on mental health using routinely collected clinical data. Um, now, I had to look up some images of what this area looked like. I included one here for you, Joe. It, it, it looks nice. You basically have a canal space with a lot of vegetation growing up on one side of it, you know, and then I mean, a little bit on the surface of the water. Uh, you have a, what looks like a walking and or bicycle path and then some more green space and some walls and some trees and whatnot. And it looks pleasant. It looks like a place if you lived in this area, you might you might go to for a bike ride or a walk, et cetera. Mm hmm. So a number of factors went into this localized study, including distance one resides from the blue space, um, psychotropic medication prescriptions, socioeconomic deprivation in the area, uh, comorbidities, and demographics. So what did they determine in this analysis? Well, they identified a protective modifying effect of living near the blue spaces in relation to the impact of socioeconomic deprivation and mental health disorders. So the idea here is that the blue space doesn't completely cancel out all of the negative effects on mental health, but it provides what they describe as a quote-unquote protective moat, hmm. which is also clever because, you know, it's a water feature. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, they also write that their findings suggest that increased exposure to blue spaces rolled out in urban spaces uh, could reduce medication intake and reduce mental health inequalities in urban areas. Yeah, I think it's important to note that while like the uh, the positive effects of things like blue spaces does appear to be pretty good, also the effects are fairly modest. So they're not going to be like a fix-all for uh, all of everyone's problems, but they seem to be part of a suite of solutions to generally make uh, make life and make urban environments uh, more friendly. And those, those kind of things, while no one of them is going to be life-changing, probably, they can add up. Yeah, yeah, they they can all add up to uh, to an increase in quality of life, uh, staving off some of these additional uh, uh, 
uh, mental and health uh, issues. So something that should, certainly should be factored into urban planning, to urban restoration pro, pro, uh, projects, and so forth. And, you know, just on an individual level, you know, you can feel a little better about taking time out of your day uh, to be near water, be it in the form of, uh, you know, some sort of an artificial pond, fountain, et cetera, or, uh, you know, local bodies of water and so forth. You know, there's something I wonder about that I, I haven't seen this cited in any papers we were looking at or anything. This is just kind of a, amusing. But I wonder if there is some psychological benefit uh, or quality of life benefit to just having something near you that is an excuse for you to go do something you don't have to do. You know, mm-hmm. and it can be anything. It can be a, it could be a park or it could be a pathway near your house or something. Just an excuse to like, uh, a, an excuse to go do something that is not work and is not like a screen. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, ultimately occupies your mind uh, in a way that, uh, that may force out other thoughts and other preoccupations. Uh, you know, that, that taps into, uh, you know, our, our basic primal wiring to see what's going on over there by the water. Uh, are there ducks? Yeah. What are the ducks doing? Are they, are they minding their own business or are they looking at me suspiciously? Uh, are there coins in the fountain, et cetera? And again, if you're on the fence about building that koi pond, uh, you know, don't don't build it just because you listen to this episode. But also, I mean, don't not build it. We're not saying it's going to be a cure all, but also, hey, you know, water's nice. Why not go for it? It might be nice. Now, the one thing I would hesitate on is throwing pennies in the pond with the fish. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I don't know that that's a bad idea, but I have a hunch. Oh, I mean, based on all the signs I see, uh, places I go, they say don't throw the coins in because they, they're not good for the fish or the turtles or what have you. So uh, unless it is a designated wishing fountain, don't cast your wishes because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to work. All right, we're going to go ahead and close this episode out, uh, but we'd love to hear from everyone out there. What are your thoughts on green spaces and blue spaces, on naturally occurring bodies of water and, uh, and, and fountains? Uh, do you have a, a favorite uh, that you have uh, observed or hang out around frequently? Uh, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Also, thanks to my wife who suggested this episode. We were kind of casting around, and I, was, I said, hey, what, what, what would you like to hear an episode about? And she said, uh, oh, I've heard, about, heard some, about some studies regarding blue spaces. And so uh, we looked into it, and here we are. If uh, you would like to catch up on past episodes of the show, well, you can find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We have episodes of Listener Mail on Mondays, short-form artifact or monster fact episodes on Wednesdays. On Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. And in terms of that that uh, fire extinguisher episode of Invention that we mentioned, offhand, I cannot remember if we have republished that one in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. I assume that we have, but there is also a separate abandoned podcast feed for Invention, which was a show we did for a period based on inventions. So you can also find it there if you wish. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.